Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well, Leslie. By the time that people are listening to this, it will be 2021 and everything will be magically better. Snap. Wait, that's Thanos. That's the wrong idea. Whoops. <laughs> just just that simple on New Year's morning 2021, everything will be just fine and everyone will be happy and we'll all be able to hug again. Yay. I mean, look, New Year's Day and Thanksgiving are my two favorite holidays. And I am going to choose to feel the hope that comes with the new calendar year. Obviously, we, you know, the pandemic isn't going away. It's only getting worse here in Los Angeles, which has become the epicenter of the, the pandemic now. But uh, you have to have hope, right? You know, so that that's where I'm at, at least right now. But this also could just be uh, vacation, Leslie, talking because I've been off for the past week and a half as we record this. Well, how nice. Uh, yeah, we'll see. There's nothing wrong with having hope. I think there's I think there's maybe something wrong with blind optimism and fantasy. But having hope, I believe TV's top five endorses hope. Yes, we're pro hope. Well, with that said, this is actually our 2021 preview episode for episode 101. We're going to take a look at some of the high profile shows that are ending this year and some of the big anticipated new ones that are expected to come. And yeah, we're going to do a check in on how COVID is is affecting everything right now. But uh, before we get into things, let's get a little uh, holiday headline catch up. What do you say, Dan? Bring it on. Leading off, Disney Plus used the season two finale of The Mandalorian to introduce a third spinoff, this one called The Book of Boba Fett, due in December. And by my count, that's 11 Star Wars series in the works at Disney Plus. In other pickup news, FX has gone to series on Reservation Dogs, a comedy from Taika Waititi and Sterling Harjo. It's the latest TV foray for Waititi, who also has the cablers What We Do in the Shadows, two animated Charlie and the Chocolate Factory animated shows in the works at Netflix, the HBO Max comedy Our Flag Means Death, and Showtime's Jude Law vehicle The Auteur. In renewal news, HBO Max has formally picked up the flight attendant for a second season. Netflix handed out a season three pickup for Lock and Key. That's an early pickup, so it's going to shoot seasons two and three back to back. Virgin River will return for a third time at the streamer. Over at Amazon, their streamer and retail giant is bringing back the Wilds for a second run after that cliffhanger finale. Yes, I did watch that over the holiday break. HBO is bringing back his dark materials for a third and final season. And CBS has extended rookie comedy Be Positive, ordering an additional five episodes of the Chuck Lorre comedy, bringing its total to 18. And a reminder, you can go back and listen to our 100th episode to hear Kaylee Cuoco discuss plans for season two of The Flight Attendant. And in case you missed it, Jim Carrey has wrapped his run as Joe Biden on Saturday Night Live. Alex Moffat replaced him in the last episode of 2020, and we presume he's going to do that going forward. But it's always important to remind people that before our current administration, it really wasn't necessary for Saturday Night Live to do presidential spoofs on a weekly basis. So maybe in a perfect world... Joe Biden will only pop up occasionally on Saturday Night Live because maybe in a perfect world, he will only occasionally do things that require lampooning on Saturday Night Live. Let us all knock on wood. Yes, knock, knock. This is the hope that I was talking about, Dan. Here we go. Here we go. Well, with headlines out of the way, let's dive into the top five. Number one. 
Leading off our 2021 preview, let's look at some of the most anticipated new scripted series expected to air this year. And, you know, look, I've been compiling this list for the past couple of years, and I, I reach out to all the networks and streamers. And this year, everyone stressed the same thing. These are target dates. Saying that a show like the Netflix Anna Delvey show from Shonda Rhimes is targeted to air in 2021 is a perfect world scenario. And obviously, anything could change with the pandemic and as the virus, especially as the virus continues to surge. So you can kind of take this segment and the next one with a grain of salt because we don't know what's going to happen. So we have hope. But yeah. There's a lot of variables as as 2020 proved. So let's take a look, Dan. There's a lot of impressive stuff on the list, and it was really hard to pare it down for me this year um, because there's just so much high profile content. And I think in compiling this list, what stood out most to me was just how much of it was all streaming. Guess what? We're going to have at least in the next year, let's just say 30 or 40 more The Streaming Wars topics on this podcast and for good reason that's that's where that's where the money is it's where the money is and it's where the money is i i don't know i don't know if there's any other way to put it it's also i guess where people will let people make eight episode shows or 10 episode shows or six episode shows which is always appealing to the movie stars among us but yes you're your story of 21 anticipated new scripted shows features a lot of impressive stuff and a lot of stuff that, honestly, if we see it in 2021, I'll be amazed. <laughs> Which, yeah, so some of the some of, let's just run through some of it. So Bel Air. So that that's my first one. And, and I presented this list in alphabetical order. And that's the first one that I want to talk about, because Peacock, like HBO Max, kind of had a lackluster launch. And now I'm going to remove saying kind of from that sentence, you know. HBO Max had a had a good end to the year with with the flight attendant. And I think a lot of people are really starting to to use that service as more of a go to now that they've got a couple of originals. They've had a, a what is it, the Meryl Streep movie? Was that HBO Max? I can't even remember. Um, yes. Yeah. That is the Amer so people are starting to, to discover that service and, and use it for, for a lot of library content, whereas Peacock still really hasn't had that thing. And that could change this year because guess what's streaming now on Peacock? And that's The Office, one of the biggest streaming uh, acquired shows out there. It was Netflix reinvented it basically as an as a hit for another generation. And now it's moving to Peacock. So Bel Air is among my most anticipated because it's based on the viral short that reimagines the 1990s sitcom as a drama. The original producers, as well as Will Smith, are all attached. It hasn't begun casting. But if you look at, at what that trailer is, at what, what the viral video it does, and you've got the creator of that attached, this is going to be good. And it also has a chance to... to launch the career of someone new, much in the way that the Fresh Prince helped solidify Will Smith as a dual threat. So... This hasn't be started casting yet. So the fact that they're saying this is going to come out this year, that's a big deal. And I think talking about Peacock is going to be a, a big deal this year. Now, not just with The Office, but with you, with a lot of, of some of these originals. So Peacock is out there. Uh, the other uh, show on my list that made it for Peacock is Girls 5 Eva. I'm not really sure how we're pronouncing this, but it's a new comedy from 30 Rock creators Tina Fey and Robert Carlock. And it's basically about an all-girl band, a former one-hit wonder group that takes another shot at stardom. And when you think about, look, it's the creators of 30 Rock. And then you look at the cast, Sarah Bareilles, Busy Phillips, Paula Pell, 
Renee Elise Goldsberry from Hamilton. This is a great cast and a great creative team. So we're fingers crossed for that one. And I'm going to hope that you're going to see the Olympics this year. You've got the office and you've got some of these other high profile things. Yes, Saved by the Bell was a thing in 2020 that kind of seems like it lasted for about a week in the conversation. Um, But I'm very curious to see what Peacock does in 2021, Dan. I think that will be somewhat interesting because, yes, as you say, Saved by the Bell definitely had a week where people were talking about it. And that's sort of the that is the path of of streaming, binging television these days is is it's the exception when you have something like Queen's Gambit, which has one week where people are talking about it and then people actually talk about it for two additional months. Uh, Yeah, it, it did not feel as if Saved by the Bell had that sort of life, but maybe it's actually just been discovered by younger viewers. And so they're not even on our, you know, <laughs> they're not on our radar because because we're not on the TikToks and whatnot. Um, or maybe you are. I don't know. You could totally be. You could be TikToking all the damn time and I would have no idea. I, I have thus far rejected TikTok, much to my family's chagrin. But yeah, so that's that is a thing to look forward to. I think probably a lot of the stuff that's coming at the top of the year, things like WandaVision, you know, that's a that's a very, very big deal for Disney Plus. And it's a big deal because for the most part, they have been the Mandalorian network and then a lot of promises about other things. Well, okay, if WandaVision actually hits and the trailers are nothing if not intriguing, you know, I would I would like for that show to be good. I've seen absolutely nothing from it other than the trailer. So who the hell knows? Yeah. And that's, again, a show that was earmarked for 2020 and, and like so many others was pushed to, ne- to 2021 because of the production delays. Exactly. That and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and the sh- and the Snowman. Um, you know, it's these are things that have been not really in the can because everything sort of got half in and half out because of the spring. But those are things that are going to be essential for Disney Plus, though, if you if you look at the subscriber numbers, it's pretty clear that people don't at this moment necessarily care. I mean, people eventually will care if there are long stretches where there aren't things that they want. But I think that there's enough. And so and so I'm not worried about it. Um, A lot of the things that I'm looking forward to are things that have been that really have been kind of in the can or on the shelf or in post-production for a long, long time. Like, I feel like Amazon and Underground Railroad have been in development and in production for multiple years at this point. And I think that's pretty much the case. Yeah, uh, and, th- and, and that is the the, Bar- the new Barry Jenkins series. So, yeah. yes, that is the Barry Jenkins series uh, that was adapted from the Colson Whitehead Pulitzer Prize winning novel, And it's been so long since that book came out that he won the Pulitzer in 2017 and has subsequently, I believe, won a second for a different book. So that's, you know, it's it's way in the past. I do remember being at TCA. Remember being at TCA, Dan? Um, I do. And seeing a clip from that for the first time. And I just the energy in the ballroom was just everyone was into it. Like it it just feels plus it reunites Barry Jenkins with the team behind the producing team behind Moonlight this is definitely one of the most anticipated. And I just want to go back really quickly to to Marvel. Look, there was no Mar- there was no Marvel movie in 2020. And when you're seeing all of these spin-offs, all the TV spin-offs coming to Disney Plus, WandaVision first out of the gate, it it, it sets it up, right? So 2021 is going to be a big year for Disney Plus and Marvel because 
WandaVision arrives January 15th, and then right behind it in March, you've got Falcon and Winter Soldier. May has Loki, and then the animated What If series in the summer, and then you've got Hawkeye coming in the, in the fourth quarter. So expect to see a lot of Disney uh, subscriber gains. I would This would be one of my predictions, more Disney Plus subscribers, because you're going to get that Marvel audience coming in who may not have much awareness that these are shows that, that are actual spinoffs featuring characters from the MCU. So yeah, just, I, I interrupted you, but go ahead, Dan. No, no, no. And you, and, and, and a little bit like we said at the very top of the show um, about expectations and hopes and dreams, when you say you can expect to see those shows in those months, let's say we hope that you will see those shows in those months because honestly, they're but for the grace of whatever goes anything. So there, there's a lot of stuff that has been not on the shelf again, but has been in development forever. So are we actually going to get impeachment American crime story this year? Well, they are in production on it. There have been the set photos of Sarah Paulson kind of unrecognizable as Linda Tripp, et cetera. Well, I would really love for that to be a thing that exists at some point. And heaven knows that Ryan Murphy is good at basically making things happen by sheer force of will. So if anyone is going to be able to plow through this and get us a, a show, but keep in mind that when that was initially announced, there was all of the, oh, are they going to get it out by the election? Is it going to be able to impact the election? Is it going to change the world? Who knows? And now it actually has the ability to simply come out as whatever it is. So I think that that there's actually significantly less pressure and significantly less, I don't know, just discussion around it, but then there may also be less hype as well. Um, and, and just lots of these things that we've been talking about for months and months and months that dropped off the radar. So the Kate McKinnon, uh, Elizabeth Holmes thing for Hulu, we've been talking about that forever. Um, are we going to get any of the various Tiger King miniseries in the next 12 months? Well, Maybe. <laughs> my I think that the the Joe Exotic one for Peacock is going to be a 2022 push from from my reporting. That's what that's everything that I'm that I'm hearing on that front. But I do want to go back and talk. You know, you mentioned all these things are have been kicking around and toiling around for a while. This is also just part of the world that we're living in. You know, with streaming and cable, nothing is on the annual schedule the way it used to be. I mean, a little bit more so on cable, but definitely not with streaming where a show can get an, like Lord of the Rings or Halo to of the most anticipated shows out there, those get announced and you're looking at years, literal years and years and years and years waiting and everything, you know, obviously both derailed by the pandemic. Uh, Lord of the Rings, there is a slim chance that it could arrive in the fourth <laughs> quarter or late 2021, uh, late this year. Halo, I think, is going to be 2022 from everything that I'm hearing. But the one thing that I hear that is definitely happening this year is Why the Last Man, which made my list of the most anticipated shows of 2020. I didn't put it on this year because, well, it was on last year's. And yes, it's still anticipated, but it, it's just with all that you've got the showrunner change, the, 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 you changed the, the, the kid that's playing Yorick. It's it's you've changed platforms. It's not going to debut on FX. It's going to debut on FX on Hulu. They ch they changed monkeys for heaven's sakes. It's a it's a virtual monkey. Is that and, confirmed, and Dan? We haven't heard if that's confirmed yet. I, I saw. I thought I saw some people online saying that basically uh, PETA had celebrated that it was going to be a virtual monkey. So well, that's but, you, that's you know. Katie the Capuchin monkey, the same monkey from Friends, same monkey who played Marcel. Um, that was some, some of my favorite reporting that came out of the last couple of years. So, but yeah, I, I'm excited to see that. I love the comic, but it didn't make my list. Um, 
you know, impeachment is the the lone show, I think, if memory serves, that was on last year's most anticipated list that I put on this year's list again, just because of the concept and the cast and the and the creative team behind it. But some of the other stuff, you know, let, let's talk about HBO Max for a second. So the stipulation for making this list is that it has to be new and it has to be scripted and it's not a, you know, a new season of uh, an anthology that reinvents itself. Well, well I broke that with impeachment, but I also broke it with the Friends reunion special, which was supposed to help launch HBO Max when that debuted. And we are now hearing that it's supposed to film in March, where you're getting the everyone back together on the Burbank set where they originally shot Friends. I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, given the state of the world right now, if that gets delayed again, especially, you know, and we'll talk about this in our third segment, but, you know, with productions getting pushed a little bit now at the top of the year as L.A. becomes just a completely terrifying place to be. But yeah, just, you know, looking at looking down the row at, at HBO Max, I also put a show that probably no one has heard of on here. It's called Generation. I read the script. I've talked to a bunch of people about this. It's basically euphoria, but it's got a very, very fresh, fresh voice. Zelda Barnes. She's 19. She co-created and co-wrote the script alongside her father. It's a 10, ep- 10 episode, half hour dramedy that follows a group of high school students whose exploration of modern sexuality basically tests beliefs of life and love and all this other stuff. And Lena Dunham, who executive produces the series, mentored Zelda Barnes. And um, Martha Plimpton stars in a, in a new cast that uh, fe- also features Justice Smith from The Get Down, who was fantastic in that. And this script, it's so fresh. It's so good. I really have high expectations for it. And I really could have put, you know, a lot of the bigger IP on this, right? Gossip Girl, the new Gossip Girl is coming in 2021. The new Pretty Little Liars is, is earmarked for 2021. Neither one, um, well, Gossip Girl has been cast. Pretty Little Liars, we still don't know much about. But yeah, I, I'm very excited about Generation. People who I've talked to who, who have worked on the show or either read the script are also equally excited about it. There's so much other content that didn't make the list that we could have put on here. You know, stuff, you know, when we talk about HBO Max, also we're going to talk about HBO, but the new in treatment made the list, right? With Uzo Aduba starring in there. That's part of an effort from a lot of the cable networks and streamers who are looking for more intimate shows that are going to be a little easier to film during the pandemic. And then a lot of stuff that didn't make my list that could have, it was on my, my, you know, the long version of the list before it got whittled down was the Gilded Age, which we kind of joked about on this show, you know, having been toiled, talking about shows that have toiled around for years, at NBC during the Bob Greenblatt era. Then it goes to HBO for a long time. Uh, scenes from a marriage at HBO, the new Mike White comedy, the, the white, the white Lotus at HBO. There's just so much stuff. It's really, really hard to pare this down. And we haven't even talked about Apple and Netflix who have some of just a lot of big titles that are, that made, that did make this list, Dan. And your, and your list is, as you noted, it's, it's new stuff. And so it doesn't include a lot of stuff that, for example, we didn't, just simply didn't get in 2020. Like, for example, a new season of Succession. It has been a long time since we got new episodes of Succession. I'm counting Succession as my most anticipated new show of 2021. I don't care if it's not new. It's been too long. Um, It doesn't sound as if we're likely to get Atlanta this year. It'll probably be more likely to be early 2022. But, um, you know, you can always... You can always hope you can always cross your fingers on something like that. Um, yeah, lots of lots of new stuff. And um, 
Yeah. And I know this segment is getting long, but I do want to just run down some of the other stuff. Um, You know, we talked at this at the start of the segment about Bel Air. You've got another kind of new take on an old one where you've got Dexter coming back at Showtime. This was one of my favorite shows of all time. Uh, at least the first four seasons were. And you've got original sh- showrunner Clyde Phillips, who is basically returning to give this a proper send off. And you can go back and listen to our interview with Clyde from episode 91 from last October. And there's just so much other stuff. You know, Apple ha- is going to have a big year. They had one of probably one of the biggest breakouts this year with Ted Lasso, which is you want to talk about returning shows that I'm very excited about. That is right up there with Succession and hopefully the second half of Pen 15 second season. Um, Apple also has Julianne Moore starring in Lizzie's story based on the Stephen King novel. And Stephen King is actually writing all eight episodes of the thriller that sees him reteam with J.J. Abrams. Apple's also got a huge international show called Pachinko based on the New York Times bestselling novel of the same name. It's a big budget drama that is told in multiple languages and filmed across multiple continents. Apple also has Physical, which which stars Rose Byrne as, well, it's basically a 1980s aerobics set comedy. Uh, Rose Byrne has been at the top of every network and streamers wish list. She is always the one who gets every offer all over the place and basically picked this one. And then one of my favorite titles, Schmigadoon. I have no idea if that's how they say it, but it looks like it. Schmigadoon. And it's Cecily Strong reteaming with Lauren Michaels for a star-studded comedy described as Groundhog's Day meets Enchanted. The cast is just killer. Uh, Cecily Strong, Keegan-Michael Key star as a couple who turn to backpacking to reinvigorate their relationship and, and stumble upon a magical town where everyone acts like they're in a musical from the 1940s and they can't leave until they find true love. The cast also features Alan Cumming, Fred Armisen, Kristen Chenoweth, Aaron Tevitt, Jamie Camille and Jane Krakowski. It's just loaded. Yeah. And, and, you know, look, we're going to wrap up with Netflix. I'm going to run it quickly, but inventing Anna, this is the first show that Shonda Rhimes will write since she wrote the series finale of scandal. So it's based on the New York times magazine story about the a fake German heiress who cons her way into the New York society scene. Shonda already broke out this Christmas with Bridgerton, the period, the period drama, and this new limited series stars Julia Garner as Anna Delvey. And the cast is, is it's stacked too. So other stuff at, at Netflix. I put some other things on here that are big bets. I think, you know, John Wells, he created Shameless for Showtime. Shameless is one of the most watched acquired shows on Netflix. Now he's coming to Netflix with an original series called Made. So we're hoping to see if this this show, it's it's based on the best-selling memoir about a, a single mother who turns to housekeeping to make ends meet. So it, And the series, like Shameless, explores poverty in America. Nick Robinson and Andy McDowell co-star in, in the series, uh, which is top-lined by Margaret Qualley. And it's it's it basically explores the same subjects as Shameless does. So will this will lightning strike twice for Netflix? We'll wait and see. Um, And then you've got some other big names, Colin in black and white. This is a six episode scripted drama that explores the adolescent life of Colin Kaepernick. Oh, the discourse is sure to be great around that one. (laughs) Yes. Well, Ava DuVernay and uh, Kaepernick uh, are part of the creative team. Mary Louise Parker, Nick Offerman play parents to Jaden Michael, uh, who plays the quarterback in his formative years. Netflix also has the the live action take of Cowboy Bebop, which is the beloved Japanese anime series uh, starring John Cho. 
that's due this year. And then I put um, a big broad comedy on here. This one's called Dad, Stop Embarrassing Me. And it marks the first series regular role for Jamie Foxx in two decades. And it's based on and, and it's inspired by his relationship with his daughter, Corrine, who also executive produces. And it's part of Netflix's big push for broad skewing fare. So there's just a ton of stuff coming. And, you know, the list was really hard to pare down and, and other things that didn't make it, but were on the, the cusp. Shogun at FX, which has already changed writers after it was first announced in 2018, is expected that to come is, this year. That one is definitely one that if it comes in 2021, I'll eat my hat. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. The Nevers <laughs> at HBO was on the list in my rough draft. And then once Joss Whedon was no longer attached, fell off. Um, some interesting stuff coming at Stars, Run the World, and Blind Spotting. You can look up all of these stuff on, on THR, of course. And then shows that made the list last year that, that didn't make it this year because, well, there's so much other stuff. You've got Love and Beth, the new Amy Schumer comedy for um, on Hulu, and Only Murders in the Buildings, starring Steve Martin and Martin Short with, and produced by This Is Us creator Dan Fogelman. Ryan Murphy's Halston limited series with Ewan McGregor as the famed designer. And then, you know, finishing up with Peacock, so much cool stuff is coming. The new Mike Schur comedy, Rutherford Falls with Ed Helms, the Dr. Death limited series and McGruber all due in 2021. So there's a ton of content and we're going to knock on wood. You can hear me doing it in the background here that this stuff can actually get made and that our world becomes safe enough where these productions can get back to work do so safely and deliver on some of this great content, which just looks so good on paper. Excellent. Well, that's it for our first segment. But number two, after looking at shows that are launching in 2021. Number two. Let's get a preview of some of the shows that we know we're saying goodbye to in 2021, because guess what? There are a lot of those as well. And guess what? Again, everything we're about to mention is, as ever, contingent upon, well, anything actually getting produced and airing at all. So we'll see. Yeah, so you've got a couple of big critical darlings that are leaving some big voids for their specific networks to fill. I think the biggest show on this list is Better Call Saul, Dan, which is wrapping at AMC. There is, and that's one that I definitely am not expecting to see in 2021 because the producers uh, like to make sure that they can be as precise as possible about everything. And while they've been in the writer's room and they've definitely you know, written scripts for an entire final season. I don't believe they've begun production. And if they haven't begun production, it's unclear when they're going to begin production. And so I would not be at all surprised to see this one come out first quarter of 2022. Obviously, I would love to see it whenever they think they're ready to show it to us. So yeah, and that's a, you know, it's a huge show for AMC because AMC has been able to extend that part of its reputation, the critically adored Emmy winning part of its re reputation, which obviously started with Mad Men and then went into Breaking Bad. And then thanks to Better Call Saul, they've been able to extend it without quite as many wins, but with a comparable amount of acclaim. Uh, so, yeah, once they reach that point, then AMC will be in the process of continuing to redefine what they are. And heaven knows they have enough Walking Dead related content, though even that's ending just in 2022, in yeah, just not in 2021. So let's not talk any more about Walking Dead because who wants to do that? Uh, but yes, uh, Better Call Saul, if it were to end this year, would be probably the biggest thing to end this year. But heaven knows there are a lot of other 
really, really good shows on yet another one of your excellent THR lists uh, of things coming to an end. So where else you want to go from there? I mean, Superstore, you know, this this current season is is the last one. Dan, I know you've kind of felt mixed about the show after America Ferrara departed, but it's still a huge show for them, at least critically speaking. I mean, it's hard to really you know, tally how anything performs these these days, which is why I don't really talk about ratings much on the show. Um, but yeah, Superstore to me, it's, it's you know, with that departure, you're, you know, you've got Brooklyn Nine-Nine coming back at, on NBC and our fingers and toes are crossed that, that that show will be able to handle policing and the portrayal of it in a responsible fashion. But Superstore is, is going to leave a big void. You know, there's not a whole lot of shows like it on broadcast, especially on broadcast these days. That's certainly true. And yeah, I I didn't think that the show handled America Ferrera's exit very well. On the other hand, I think it's handled COVID spectacularly well. And so, you know, that's, that's, you know, one hand gives, the other hand takes. Um, And yeah, it's, this, this is a show that has fit into a long running reputation for NBC nurturing and holding on to critically acclaimed and not necessarily all that high rated comedies. And, you know, that extended obviously way back to Parks and Rec and to uh, The Good Place as well and into this. And so, yeah, that that is one that I will definitely miss. It is it is a show that that tackles working class issues in a way that very, very few shows on television are able to do. And it's too bad because it's a show that probably we need. It's a, it's a voice and a perspective that the landscape needs, but hopefully something else will come up to, to take its place. So those are a couple big ones. Uh, not surprisingly, your list is like two thirds Netflix shows coming to an end. They're, they're basically clearing out a whole, whole pile of old stuff at Netflix. Yeah. I mean, just before we get to Netflix, I do want to mention, you know, you've got a couple other shows on broadcast that are, that we know are wrapping up this year. And two of them are at the CW, which, which is thinning its superhero roster with the ends of Supergirl and Black Lightning. And, you know, we're talking about broadcast now, but in our previous segment about the most anticipated scripted shows, I didn't mention broadcast at all. Like that to me just just tells you where our landscape has shifted, you know, in the past few years, especially after, you know, a year that we just had where everyone stuck at home is turning largely to streamers. So, um, yeah. So speaking of streamers, you know, we've talked on this show so much about how Netflix has a penchant for canceling shows after two or three or if you're lucky, four or more seasons. And the biggest title on this list for Netflix is Grace and Frankie, which, you know, just beats out Orange is the New Black in terms of total episodes as Netflix's longest running scripted original series. So the other shows that are ending, you've got Kaminsky Method, Atypical, Dead to Me, Dear White People, F is for Family, which is animated and kind of falls under a different track, Feel Good, Lucifer, Lost in Space, and Ozark. And a lot of these are less than four seasons old. So, you know, that's the model. So, the, the, you know, these are also the shows that are lucky enough to be able to plan and know this is the last act. I mean, Netflix, we've seen, has a penchant for just saying this didn't work. It doesn't matter if there's a cliffhanger. It's going away. But that's also not exclusive to streamers like Netflix. The broadcast does it all the time. But that's obviously a very, very different business model. But yeah, so there's a lot of good stuff on here, Dan. I know you're a big fan of Atypical. 
I'm a big fan of several of these shows. Uh, Dead to Me is a show that I like, but not as much as some people. Ozark is a show I like significantly less than a lot of people. But a lot of these are shows that I like very much. Uh, the second season of Dear White People, I think, is a, a spectacular season of TV. And I think it's overall a very good show and a show that I'm glad is getting the chance to end it on its own terms. Uh, F is for Family is a show that has always been in the shadow of your BoJack Horsemans, your Big Mouths, even the one year that we all talked about, Tuca and Birdie, because Netflix canceled it for no reason. F is for Family is in that qualitative category. It is a very good period family comedy that I strongly recommend to people. And Atypical is a show that that just has grown on me with each passing season and that I feel a tremendous amount of, of warmth towards. And it's it's a show you want to hug. It's a show you want to nurture. And I, I hope that they have a good approach to how they're going to bring that show into a landing, even if it doesn't have like huge mysteries or anything that needed to be solved, I would like for them to find a good resting spot for it because it's a show I like very much. So, yeah, a lot of these are shows that are very good and feel good. I mean, is you know, it's it's ending after two seasons. And so it's not like anyone made a deep investment in that show. The first season was six half hour episodes. I assume the second season will be as well. It's it's very British in that respect. But the first season was damn good. So. You know, I I will be happy to have a second season, and then that's just how it goes in today's business. So, yeah, lots lots of Netflix shows coming to an end, and as we've talked about in recent weeks and months, lots of Netflix shows that never will get an end. So, oh yeah. well. And you know, wrapping things up, I think the show that's on this list that I'm most curious about how they're going to stick the landing is Shameless at Showtime, one of my all time favorite shows. Um, you know. Emmy Rossum departed a few years ago. Dan, I know you're a big fan. I, I continued to watch, um, you know, this season was very much upended by COVID, which they wrote into the series. I don't know how they're going to stick this landing. My, my last interview with John Wells ahead of the final season premiere, he hadn't written the series finale yet. We're a few, I think we're three or four episodes into the final season. They may have planted one seed about how this is going to end. And I'm not going to spoil that here, but I don't know how they're going to end this. You know, Wells has always said that he envisions this as a show where the camera just pans down the street and you get the feeling that the Gallagher family, that life just goes on. But you've also had, you know, people moving out right of, of the house. You know, Emmy Rossum's character did it. You have someone else on the show that did it this season and you get the feeling that 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 is how he's going to end it. But it's also William H. Macy's character is going to have to have some comeuppance for this just absolutely awful life that he has led so you're kind of wondering you know my eyes are, are are fixated on that and seeing if that's what what you know how, how wells is going to end it so i don't know but lots of stuff you know coming uh lots of stuff to be excited about if you love these shows and as we say if they can actually air them this year if they can actually finish production that's that will be a blessing but it's also just the idea that these creators are getting the opportunity to know in advance that this is their last chapter is a gift that many creators do not get. So be grateful and we'll be watching. Number three. Up third, we've talked about this in the last two segments, but it's hard to preview the year ahead without talking more about the pandemic. So we've said how much things could change if production is interrupted. And LA has now become the epicenter of the pandemic. Stay-at-home orders have been extended into the new year. 
The L.A. County Department of Public Health has urged the film and TV industry to consider pausing productions for a few weeks during the ongoing surge in coronavirus cases throughout the county. And, you know, look, now we're starting to see that CBS Studios, which produces shows like NCIS and scores of others, has extended its holiday hiatus from January 4th to January 11th. SAG-AFTRA, the guild that represents actors, told members this week that most entertainment productions will remain on hiatus until the second or third week of January, if not later. Dan, I don't know about you, but this is starting to feel a whole lot like March when the production shutdown started to roll in. And already, even the productions that we had and that brought shows back in the fall did so in ways that were strange and not ideal. You know, there was a lot of attempting to simulate business as usual in the fall that wasn't really as usual. So we had Dan Fogelman on the podcast talking about this is us coming back and all of the efforts they were taking and how relatively smooth it sounded like their return was. But this is us returned with four episodes, basically with three weeks of television and then vanished for two months. And that was sort of how they did their fall was here. It's three nights of TV. And and I think there's going to be a lot of that. I, I think that, that there are going to be a lot of bursts of new programming when people are able to do things, followed by long delays when they can't. And if you happen to be in Los Angeles right now, you know why it would be the production in Los Angeles would be very difficult. It's not great here right now. People are saying there are no hospital beds, and that is not good. And it's not good that there we're still having these fights about who and what is essential and why certain things that don't seem like they're essential are essential. And so is the entertainment industry essential? Well, it's a, essential to the thousands of people who who require it to work and to feed their families and to live. And, and to so, the Southern California economy. And to, and to the Southern California economy. And so, good God, on that level, of course it's essential. But you and our colleagues at THR have been reporting steadily on these shows that have had basically in-show outbreaks, despite the amount of effort that they've been taking to to keep things clean. So some shows have been amazingly efficient and have had no cases, and God bless them. You know, Mike Flanagan, uh, who did The Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor, he posted on Twitter last week or two weeks ago, basically, that he filmed a limited series that he directed every episode of that he describes as the biggest thing he's ever done. And he wanted to emphasize that they had no cases of COVID in the entire production of the show. Well, awesome. God bless. But plenty of shows have had five cases, 10 cases, 15 cases, 20 cases, multiple shutdown. I mean, Shameless even had, was shut down for a few days before the holidays because they had what I was told it was like 20 or more people test positive and they wound up getting retested because they were all in the same zone and it wasn't an outbreak. It was all false positive, but they still lost. I think it was like three, three, maybe four days of production, which is yes, fine. Shut it all down when you've got that many positives, even if they're not, even if nobody thinks that they're right, 
But this is an interruption. And, you know, one of the most illuminating interviews that we did last year, Dan, was from episode 90 in October with Alex Kurtzman about uh, the Star Trek franchise, where he detailed just how much longer it takes to film a show safely in this era how and how much more money it costs every episode to do so so that's also you know look we, we've talked all about the unrenewals and you know and, and all of that stuff but look this is if anything can get produced this year you know yes great enjoy have you know fi find your solace in this programming or see yourself on tv art is so important and so valuable now more than ever but so is doing it safely and protecting those who are making it yeah, it it obviously goes both ways. We we want the industry to still be there when this is all over, and we want the people who work in it to still be there. And obviously, so many of these things that are crucial to keeping people eating, you know, to to keeping the heat on. Not so much a problem in Los Angeles, but elsewhere. To, I mean, it's cold just, here. It's like got hail yeah, the other day. It's it's not that's not that cold. But yes, it, but all of the things that people need to live, if the government had done different things this entire time to help people without work, this obviously would not be as much of a terrifying situation as it is. And and that's the that's the side effect that people don't get to the, oh, can we afford to give everyone two thousand dollars per month or whatever you want to say, you know, oh, what happens if we keep giving people free money? Well, the answer is if we don't keep giving people money, people have to go back to work because they have to live. And that means that they're making these allowances where, oh, you know, 20, 20 outbreak, whatever, 20 cases, 20 positives, they were false positives. So let's keep going. But what about the shows that had five positives that weren't false positives? You know, what is the line at which we're shutting things down? Yeah, I mean, Sh Shamar Moore, who, who stars on a CBS show, just posted, I think it was on Christmas Eve or the day before that that he tested positive for COVID. You know, like this is the lead actor of your show who is supposed to be the most you know, the, with cast members supposed to, to be the most protected people on set and also the most vulnerable because they're the ones that have to take their masks off unless you're really on Grey's Anatomy, but where they're filming everything with masks because COVID is number one on the call sheet. But like, you know, it's I, I just, you know, my heart goes out because you should feel safe going to work. <sighs> anyway, guess what? We're going to be talking about this more in the weeks to come. So so let's let's keep this short because it'll be a long story stretched across the entire year. Number four. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Our guest this week, and this is the first time we've had three guests at once, uh, took a beloved movie from the 1980s and gave it a polish for the streaming age, first on YouTube and now on Netflix, with the third season of Cobra Kai launching on January 1st. Before working together on the Karate Kid spinoff, John Horowitz and Hayden Schlossberg worked together on the Harold and Kumar films and An American Reunion, while my former college classmate Josh Heald wrote Hot Tub Time Machine and its sequel. Welcome to the podcast, Josh, John, and Hayden. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, first off, can you guys maybe just introduce yourself since there are three of you and it's make it a, hopefully a little bit easier for our listeners to be able to identify you individually? Uh, my name is John Hurwitz, one of the uh, creators of Cobra Kai. I sound exactly like this. And uh, I am Josh Heald, and I'm talking over Hayden Schlossberg. <laughs> and uh, I'm Hayden Schlossberg, and this is what I sound like. So, uh, 
Now you know. Uh, a a wildly diverse assortment of voices we have. <laughs> are we doing it right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, just getting started, and because there are three of you, and it's very, I think you're, this is the first group of showrunners where it's a trio. Talk a little bit about how that works. How, you know, when you ha- work on this show, how does it all, like, how do you juggle who does what? Do you, are you all part of the writing staff? Do you do different things? Like, how does that work? You know, uh, it's funny, uh, our collaboration probably started roughly 25 years ago in general. Uh, the three of us have been friends since we were teenagers. Uh, Hayden and I met in high school. Uh, Josh, uh, I met freshman year in college. And then a few months later, he met Hayden. So we've all been very close for a long time. And uh, Hayden and I have had a career together writing. Uh, you know, uh, when it comes to Cobra Kai, you know, it's we all do everything. When it comes down to it, that doesn't mean that we're all doing everything at all times. Uh, but in the writer's room, we're all contributing. We're all we're all in there all the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we're on set, you know, we're all contributing. And, you know, sometimes uh, a department head will come and want an answer for something. And, you know, we all know each other well enough and know our instincts well enough to be able to give clear answers to whoever is asking a question of us. Uh, if there's something that one of us is unsure of and and we think that it's worth uh saying hey you know hold a beat let let me talk to the other guys then we'll do that but uh we all enjoy every element of the filmmaking process and uh it's fun to be able to share this with uh you know close friends yeah the one thing we didn't want to do with three showrunners is to have like well hayden says this and josh said this and john said this so who should i trust so not that we don't disagree with each other but we'll do that with each other very vocally and, you know, taking it to the edge of, you know, wanting to hit each other sometimes. Uh, but that's because, you know, uh, we've known each other for 25 years and it's fun to us in some ways. And sometimes that spills over into the writer's room and it makes it, you know, into a heated discussion um, only because we're all so passionate about the show. But once we have a script and we are making the show and we are on set and we are consulting with the department heads, uh, it is a a finely tuned machine and it's it's a hive mind that we've just become kind of the karate hive mind at this point so so that carries over into direction like if uh if john and hayden are credited as directors on an episode it's really effectively the three of you if josh is credited it's effectively the three of you or is that a different part of the process you know i mean for the most part you know i think especially in the medium of television you know as showrunners we're sort of overseeing everything john and i you know have a history directing together so you know we're we're in the director's guild as a as a duo and so you'll see us uh together as directors uh Josh you know directed for the first time the first season of Cobra Kai so he's a singular director there and you know we'll we'll you know respect uh the typical process of saying action and cut and all of that but when it comes to the the creative decisions it really is a, a hive mind yeah, we're, we're huddling after takes anyway, whether or not it's an episode that one of us is directing or if we have a guest director. So when it's one of us or, you know, or two of us directing an episode, it makes it that much easier um, in terms of it feeling like a family effort. Um, but the deeper you get into production, you know, the more that we're pulled in different directions. So, you know, if it's John and Hayden's episode, they might be more intimately involved in no, I've already talked with, you know, the camera department about doing this move or we can't do that at this um, location because when we tech scouted it, you know, it doesn't have a wall. You know, so there'll be things like that where the director, you know, on the episode might be a little bit more intimately involved with the actual shooting plan. But when it comes to 
the material we're getting and the emotion and, you know, the the guts of what makes the show the show. You know, it's it's really all three of us uh, putting our heads together. So now who is the hair metal ba- fan? There's the soundtrack <laughs> in, the, in this. I just binge all through all three seasons and the soundtrack, the, all of the 80s hair metal stuff is so great and so on brand. It brings me back to my childhood. I grew up, I remember going, you know, to see Karate Kid with, with my friends. I think I was in sixth grade, maybe when it came out. Who, who's like, where's uh-huh. the, the love for the moot for this franchise come from? And, and who really is the hair metal fan? Because I, I need to know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would say, first of all, it's it starts with Johnny because the character Johnny is is the fan. And we all happen to love that music as well. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll all have musical, uh, you know, uh, ideas that when we're in the writer's room, we'll say, oh, let's put this song in or it could be one of our editors as it's like we'll put in the in the script it'll say like oh like a kick-ass 80s track kicks in for this you know montage and then you know it's it's up to our editors and our music supervisor to pitch things um you know i i think that uh one of our favorite things about making the show is finding those songs and uh i know that uh there are times where one of us will get really passionate about like oh we're writing this one sequence i can think of a couple moments where josh has been like okay like I know we're setting it to this Queen song. Like when I I always think about like, um, uh, you know, I want it all in the finale that, you know, Hayden and I directed, but it was when we were writing, I remember Josh was just like, you got like, like, this is the song and just kept playing it and kept insisting. And we were, we were, I remember when the dailies came in, we were, uh, we, we We kind of cut together like uh, like a, a rough version of just playing the song on our computer to the dailies. And we did one version where it was just all, slow motion making cotton candy for the entire song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and it, was, it was keeping us sane as we were making the show. But I think we all have different musical uh, influences that that we bring to the show. I mean, Hayden definitely felt the the Rocky uh, kind of the Rocky three montage, um, you know, in terms of the uh, Johnny driving in season one and feeling out the what's going to be the moody synth song there. And then I feel like driving to work one morning, we all heard head games on the radio and, you know, just clicked, you know, I, I'm, I probably have the most hair metal ideas in terms of like, let's try this. You know, what about a quiet riot song? And, and John has, you know, John brings these songs that are so specifically eighties um, to the show. And there's one in season three that, you know, that we love that, you know, it's, it's, we all approach it differently, but we arrive at it in a way where, you know it when you hear it. And what about the the franchise? I mean, this is, look, it's iconic. Everyone kind of grew up with it. And if you didn't grow up with it, your parents have told you about it. So where does the love come from? And, and you know, because the show is new to, you know, so many people found it when it went to Netflix. Obviously, we'll get into that a little bit later on this bigger platform. But because the show is new to so many people, can you talk a little bit about why this, where this idea came from? Like, take take us back. I mean, it starts with us as kids all watching The Karate Kid right around the time it came out. I mean, we were the perfect audience. We were young kids in New Jersey watching a show about a kid from New Jersey coming to L.A., getting bullied and learning this magic skill of karate from uh, Mr. Miyagi. And, you know, I think we just fell in love with that movie at a very young age when we became friends as teenagers 
uh, that was one of the movies that we bonded over and talked about. And by that phase of our lives, we were, you know, talking about it in a more joking fashion about how ridiculous it was that there was this karate gang that Daniel LaRusso had to deal with. Um, and you had all those pop cultural phrases like get him a body bag um, that that became sort of popular in the 1990s, I think, amongst the fans who grew up with the movie. And then by the time, you know, it was the early 2000s and, you know, the three of us started to become professional writers, we recognized how great a screenplay uh, the Karate Kid was. And, you know, Robert Mark came and crafted such an amazing story. And that's why it became this global phenomenon. And these characters became iconic. And, you know, the setups and the payoffs, uh, you know, um, it, it really stood the test of time. And yet the whole time we were very um, drawn to the Billy Zapka character of Johnny, uh, partially because he was also, that actor was in a, a lot of other movies in the 1980s where he played uh, a jerk. And so he just stood out to us and we would always talk about what happened to that guy. And so the concept of, you know, what happened to the bully from your high school, you know, um, was exciting to us. And we realized that, you know, a lot of times that type of guy as an adult becomes a loser and then suddenly is an underdog of their own story. And I think we realized there was something juicy there. And it was something that we've been talking about really since the early 2000s, this, this concept. But at the time, you know, making Cobra Kai into a movie was a difficult proposition because the, you know, the studios you know, want a certain level of movie star and they have to be super hot at the time. And then the Jaden Smith reboot came out and we felt, okay, well, that that is probably, you know, never going to happen. Um, but then with the advent of streaming series, uh, you, we suddenly realized that, you know what, maybe this is another way into that world. And we started thinking about it in those terms and then got really excited and called our agents and said, hey, you know, uh, who owns the rights to the Karate Kid? Because we have an idea. Now, OK, you guys obviously premiered on YouTube or YouTube Red when they were in a moment where they were diving in aggressively to original scripted programming. And that moment lasted roughly two years. It gets to be the summer. What were you guys hearing about the future of original programming at YouTube and what that meant for season three? Was there ever a second where you actually worried, oh, God, we might slip through the cracks entirely? How did how did that all happen? Yeah, shows were getting canceled left and right or changing platforms, et cetera. You know, it was an interesting time because, you know, our show was was such a success for them internally that all of the messaging to us was, yeah, we're getting out of scripted or we're, we're reevaluating our scripted situation. But, you know, Cobra Kai is kind of an outlier from that. So we were just like, OK, I guess we would joke around about like where this like star football player on like a, a, a football team that's going to stop playing football. <laughs> and we're just like, we're like, well, what are we, what, what are we doing here? But we were, we were like, you know what, as long as we have there, the checks are clearing and we get to keep making the show, <laughs> let's keep making the show. And, and, you know, to be honest, like, I think we were in our own heads while, while shooting season three, thinking to ourselves, there's a good chance that YouTube premium is no longer and that they're going to say, OK, well, this is the last season for us. And we were prepared for that in our in our minds. The moment that um, we received the call from Suzanne Daniels, this was after we, we 
finished shooting season three and we're in editing, we get this call from her and she says, you know, I've never had to make a call like this before. Your show's a hit. People love it. The fans love it and critics love it. We love making it here. Everyone internally, you feel the love, but we're stopping making these things. So season three is going to be the end of it. Our, we were prepared on that call to say, please, you know, we appreciate everything that you've done and we love making the show with you. But we, as you know, we have more story to tell and we love the opportunity to move the show elsewhere. Um, we think that there might be a market for it elsewhere. And, you know, we had designs on Netflix from the beginning. I mean, before we pitched it to YouTube way back when, we thought this was a Netflix show. We thought that this was, if you love Stranger Things and that worldwide audience would, uh, might want to like, might might enjoy this if they love the Karate Kids. So, you know, our, our hope was that either YouTube was going to continue to go all in, like they told us when we first sold the show there. But if they weren't, that we'd have this opportunity. And it's been amazing to to watch, um, you know, uh, a show that we were already feeling like a lot of people were watching because we'd see the numbers online. But to 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 see that overnight feeling of once you have your show on Netflix and it's just exponential and it's been it's been awesome. But was the news broken to you as a done deal? Like, OK, guys, don't worry, you're not going to be on us anymore. But Netflix has you or no, not? no, no. It was broken to uh, it was broken to us like hey, um, you did a great job. Season three looks like it's going to be amazing. So it's going to be our last season. We're going to go out. We're going to go out with a bang. And we said, no, 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 slow your roll there. Like, no, we're not going out with a bang. We prefer not to. So please, we're asking you because we know how much you love the show. Uh, because I, I, we just got to emphasize, the people at YouTube, Suzanne Daniels, you know, Dustin Davis, who, who brought it in, you know, Nathan Katata, who's actually now over at YouTube. These are people who were very passionate about Netflix, making rather. Excuse me. At, uh, he's, oh, yeah. Now he's at Netflix, I should say. But, um, you know, these are people when we were working at YouTube who were, who were extremely passionate about the show. They, they cared about it creatively. So we asked them as, as friends um, and as supporters of the show to give us this opportunity to move it on. So there was a stretch of time where it was like, OK, well, either it's going to air on YouTube or we're going to find another home for it. And then there became this process of a few months where we were pitching the show like right around as the pandemic started, where we were pitching it around town. We had season three in the can, so people were able to look at, at season three. But beyond that, you know, we had to take meetings where we were trying to uh, express to people that, you know, we believe that the audience for the show is far larger than YouTube has been able to find. And there's here's all this data that tells you why we think that. And here's creatively where we're looking to go. And uh, we were lucky that, uh, you know, a lot of places were very interested in that Netflix came out on top. So season three was completely in the can. And without spoiling anything, obviously, season three is now streaming on Netflix, um, as our listeners are, are well listening to this. But Without spoiling anything, it does end with a rather a, a very natural setup for season four that if that really was the end of the road would have absolutely, I think, left people hanging. So knowing that that you're you are on unstable ground at YouTube, did you guys have any just any concerns about doing that to an audience, knowing that you may not be able to find that there was a chance that the show may not end elsewhere? We've always led with the optimism that this show will end on our own terms at the you know future season that we want it to. I think deep down we know that's you know that's a very big outlier you know in this industry that you get to you know end your show on your terms more often than not. Um, there are factors outside your control as a storyteller that you know cause a more abrupt ending. 
But I think we made a choice in how we've thought about the show as it evolved to have these big moments at the end of each season that change the game in some ways. You know, in season one, it was, uh oh, you know, here comes the big bad wolf. In season two, you know, it's just, you know, everyone's crying and everything's terrible. Uh, that would have been a horrible place to stop. And, you know, at the end of season three, you know, without spoiling it for people who haven't seen, you know, it, it really is a massive setup that delivers on the premise of where this, the you know, some of the central relationships on this show can go. Um, and I think that's our desire is to to always feel like you have to turn that page and to never have a closed ended uh, story that that feels like, well, if you needed to, you could close the book. Um, and just, you know, looking ahead, I know what we're doing for the next season. Um, and it can't possibly end after that, uh, because, you know, just there's there's so many big things left to to come that um, that we really do need the real estate to go. And, and we're just going to continue to tell the story in that way. I think I think if we felt the the fear of, uh oh, what if what if this is it? Um, we would we would lose some of the the spirit of the show, which is, you know, taking these these big, huge moments and and making it this, you know, family affair. So you mentioned that, you know, you know where obviously you, you arrived at Netflix and then get the early season four renewal. And now you just mentioned that, you know, where season four is and that there is you a door open to a potential season five. So how many seasons do you have mapped up? Like, you know, when you went into and to sell this to Netflix and your, your pitch to them, do you have an end game? Like here's where the show ends and it's in this many seasons. And here's what the finale, the series finale ultimately is. We didn't pitch the end game. We pitched, you know, what the full first season was and where the second season goes. And in our minds, we had an idea of what a very satisfying end would be. Um, but it's kind of like a, a buoy out in, in the ocean. You don't know exactly how many seasons it would take to get there. Um, you know, this is a unique show in that it's a half hour, but it's highly serialized with a ton of characters and storylines. And so you start the season off with a whiteboard full of ideas, and then you suddenly realize, oh, okay, we're not going to be able to get to all of this. And that's really what our first few seasons have been like. I mean, that's why, you know, season one ends with uh, John Kreese just entering the story. Um, we, we knew that that would provide a whole new place to go in season two. And, you know, so we're, we're at a stage now where we know what the end game is. We feel, you know, based on the audience reaction to what we've done thus far, that, you know, it should be, you know, crowd pleasing. But along the way, as you craft the story, you know, you come up with new ideas and that you want to explore. And, you know, we're having a great time making this show. And um, it's such a joy to be able to revisit these characters. So as long as, you know, we have really good story to tell and fun twists and turns, you know, we're going to continue making the show. But um, so, I mean, we don't have in our I think I'll say this, you know, we just, you know, we're in the process of writing season four right now. We have an idea of, you know, where we would go in a season, you know, beyond that. And so we don't want to be definitive about how many seasons other than to say we have a lot more like fun ideas from our whiteboard that we've been punting um, that we want to get to. And ultimately, we do have an end. I mean, we we've been inspired by shows like Breaking Bad, you know, that went on for 
six seasons and you have these awesome character arcs and swings and, and new characters coming in that change the game. And um, that's the kind of model we've been following. Yeah, there are cards on the wall that sometimes we don't know when we put them up, whether it's a joke or a arc or an episode or a season. You know, there there's Johnny gets a dojo could have been a season. You know, we made that an episode. Um, and by doing that, some of those things, by getting there faster than the audience expects, it throws the audience a little bit off kilter in terms of what their expectations are of a season. You know, we try to always have these moments at our half season mark that feel like that could have been a season and challenge ourselves in the writer's room to feel like, how do you even amp it up further than that and take it to a, you know, to a new place. But you end up with these branches, like Hayden was hinting at, that sometimes you want to kind of hang out on that branch a little bit and, and go a little deeper before you get back to your trunk and uh, and keep going on the the original runway. So, um yeah, it's, it's hard to put a number on it, but um, but that buoy gets a little bit closer every season. Now, I hope you guys won't take offense to this, but the third season feels to me like it's a more mature season of TV. It feels it feels less jokey. It feels more theme driven. It feels like it's about characters growing up. Have you guys matured into the material or did you always kind of know that you wanted to start with? Ha ha ha. This is a kind of silly joke premise but we're going to make it more serious as we go. You know, I, the, the irony is I think we've had literally the same approach from the beginning that we have now. I think the difference is the set of circumstances that the characters were in was a little lighter at the beginning. When you enter season three, you have uh, a kid in a coma. You have a kid on the run for potentially almost killing somebody. You have, you know, uh, Daniel's daughter, uh, Samantha was just in this, you know, brutal karate fight that injured her and, and scarred her emotionally. You have Johnny and Daniel who, you know, uh, have had all these ups and downs and were trying to do the right thing, teaching all these students. And we saw what the results were at the end of season two. So I think naturally uh, where we started off in season three was in a place that was, you know, much heavier than where we started in, in season one or, or season two. And as a result of that, the natural stories that were being told, I think, were at a at a, you know, uh, much uh, whether it's a deeper, more mature level where we had uh, more serious um, topics and themes to examine than uh, sort of like, oh, hey, we're back uh, 30 years later from our karate rivalry, you know, and that kind of stuff. That's a little bit lighter. Um, so, you know, in, in season three certainly has um, some very heavy moments. Um, and definitely has uh, some mature themes. Uh, but we also worked hard to, to make sure that there's uh, a lot of fun involved as well, especially as the season goes on and some of the characters are starting to get their mojo back in certain ways. It allowed for a little bit more of the comedy to creep in in a bigger way. But, you know, I, it's uh, like I said, it's 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 uh, I think more a, a function of. The, the story that's being told at this time that led to the material more so than a change in um, our approach to the material. But if I'd like told you guys when you went in and made that original pitch, OK, but by season three, you're going to have flashbacks in Vietnam getting to yes. <laughs> getting to Kreese's psychological makeup. Would you have said that sounds like a realistic thing for this series or not? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. That was that was in our initial pitch. Just we were supposed clear. to do it in season yeah. two, actually, but we didn't yeah. have room for it. Um, you know, we 
we constantly want to bring back these uh, these characters and in terms of the legacy characters and it's it's reintroducing these chess pieces to this giant game we're playing and then we start chiseling away you know when you bring a guy like crease back in well he was so one note you know as a character in the karate kid that was by design you know he's there to say all the bad things and give all the bad advice and be defeated um when he walks back in it's only after we've taken Johnny on this journey of, you know, huh, is Cobra Kai the right way? Um, and then, you know, gradually get into what makes crease crease. Um, and we did a little bit of that in season two, you know, starting to, to feel like who is the guy that, you know, lost everything after Karate Kid 3 and wandered the valley, you know, and and tried to find himself and, and who is that and what's the story he tells versus the man he is. Uh, but we always wanted to go back to Vietnam. That was uh, one of the first things we did. But it was one of those cases of, you know, you want to eat the whole birthday cake all at once. And we had to we had to course it out a little bit. One of the most difficult things to get across about the show, just talking about it, you kind of have to see it, is the tone because, you know, it, from the very beginning, our vision for this was the more seriously and dramatic you treat everything, the more comedy possibilities there are. Um, and both of those things were very important to us. And there's times on the show, some of our most favorite moments where, you know, things are completely ridiculous and entirely dramatic all at the same time. I, I was using season two, um, you know, there's a scene where, uh, you know, the Johnny um, and his old ex-Cobra Kai's all go out on this joyride to help, you know, their friend, you know, who's dying. It's the, the guy from the original movie who screams, get him a body bag. Not... Not a very complex character in the original movie, but, you know, for us, we're excited to bring these characters back. And, you know, it's at a point in the season where it's affecting Johnny's um, arc and we treat it really seriously and we treat it like, you know, th these are, you know, characters in their midlife, um, you know, watching one of their friends pass away. And at the end of the episode, he dies and is zipped up in a body bag. And we treat it completely seriously so that if you never saw the original Karate Kid, it's just a, ooh, this is a very serious episode of Cobra Kai. And yet if you watch the original Karate Kid, you see that we're making this. They're literally taking him away in a body bag. Yes, where it, it's, it's yeah. this uh, dark, weird inside Punch. joke. And so we go for comedy, but in a way that, you know, is where, where we have to treat things seriously. And, you know, I, I do want to go back and touch on the legacy characters. You know, you, you talked about that, but um, do you guys have a list of people that you want to bring back? And I mean, you, obviously bringing uh, bringing back Martin was a huge deal. And you've teased on, on social media, or at least the Netflix channels have teased on social media that there are going to be some familiar faces coming back in the new season. But how does that work? I mean, are there people who are not in the entertainment industry anymore that you've brought back in? How hard is it to find some of these guys? And has anyone said no? You know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, we always say that uh, anybody who has appeared in a Karate Kid film or in the Miyagi-verse, we the say Miyagi -verse. Uh, the Miyagi-verse, <laughs> which was uh, a, a term coined by uh, one of the Cobra Kai fan podcasts, actually. And we liked it. We, we were like, oh, we'll use that one. Um, but, uh, you know, any movie that Mr. Miyagi was in is part of the Miyagi-verse. And so we think about literally every character that has existed in a movie with Mr. Miyagi 
And some are obviously more meaningful to the franchise and to the, to the fan base than others um, and to our characters than others. But we're always taking the approach of, okay, you know, for example, everyone knows that in season three, we're going to go to Okinawa. And from the beginning, we knew that we wanted to bring uh, Tamlin and Yuji back uh, in their original roles. And, you know, it was one of those things where once the show was already out there in season one, these, you know, actors like that, you start to, you know, hear through the grapevine that they're interested in returning. So it's one of those things. So you're just like, okay, that's not going to be hard to get them because they want to do it. It's really about us making sure that we write them meaningful material, that when we come to them, they're impressed with what the storyline is and that they're excited about returning. And, uh, and then we, and everything for us is a collaboration. I remember when each of those actors were reading the scripts you know, we look forward to those moments where uh, they we have those phone calls and they say what they like and they say what they didn't like or the things that the ideas that they had um, that we could add to it. And then we all work together on it. So, you know, there are obvious characters who are, who we tease throughout the show who you you know hope are going to appear. Uh, sometimes we're writing to those characters in a way uh, that feels like, well, they have to be like already signed on to the show, but they're not, you know. Um, because it is, uh, you know, a- after New Year. And, you know, if you haven't seen the season yet, then you should probably uh, press pause on this and then turn on. But Elizabeth Shue returned in season three. Uh, but when we wrote the end of season two, where you see, you know, the camera going across the sand and the final shot is Ali Mills Schwarber has sent you a friend request. We didn't know if Elizabeth Shue was going to be up for doing the show. We uh, We had had some initial conversations with her um, we knew that there was some interest involved, but, you know, this it had been, you know, 30 years since, you know, Karate Kid for her. And it was, you know, one of her first movies. And she's gone on to do a lot of other things. And I mean, it was so funny with her. She was always like, do people really want to see Allie again? We're like, yes, yes obviously. <laughs> obviously, everyone wants that in the world. But she like doesn't realize because she's living her everyday life. She doesn't realize that like all of us are like dying to see her. So, you know, we had it was a it was a process talking through with her, you know, a how important she is to the franchise and then coming up with something that was truly meaningful for her on the show. Has anyone said no or has there been anyone that were you were not able to find them? John and I had a really uh, interesting weekend where uh, for that episode in season two, um, and I think this will end up if I had to, this might end up being something that we will loop back upon Um but we we really wanted to bring back all the original Cobra Kai's uh, for that episode in season two, and uh, you know we communicated with Chad McQueen uh, who played Dutch, and you know we're guys who talk about Dutch all the time. You know he was the most aggressive of the Cobra Kai's. He was you know he was molded in Crease's image. You know go out there and kill. Um, and we you know it with the speed that our production moved. You know we were reaching out to these guys. You know a couple of weeks before we're saying. Hey, do you want to come down to Atlanta and uh, and be in the show? And we're going to send you a script. Um, and he was going on a trip, and it was it was like bad timing. Um, but he really wanted to talk to us more about it, and asked us to come out to Palm Springs to see him. And you know, I I'm not going to miss an opportunity to go to Palm Springs and meet Chad McQueen. So we uh, <laughs> flew. flew back to LA and and couldn't reach him. And I, I guess he got his dates wrong and he was out of town by the time we were there. Uh, and then by the time he called back, we considered moving the shoot. 
Um, but it ended up not working out. So it wasn't it wasn't a no, I don't want to be in this. It was just a uh, a bad timing given the speed at which um, television moves sometimes. But uh, the choices we made uh, for his character there um, is something that I think um, it, it's a fun it's fun to paint yourself into a corner sometimes um, in terms of uh, <laughs> where characters might be in the universe. But it's still one thing to say, OK, well, we've got four former Cobra Kai guys on this road trip, not five versus, well, we've built an entire episode around Allie. Sweet Jesus, what if she doesn't want to do it? So <laughs> what do you do then? Well, well, we just basically we basically tell everybody we can, you know, that we have no backup plan. You know, do we have a backup plan? <laughs> Kinda, but not really. Like, you know, we we can always figure out a backup plan. We discuss privately with each other what a you know nuclear option backup plan might look like. But when we hear that, you know, whether or not things are looking down, looking up otherwise, and, you know, you you feel those questions from, you know, somebody at the, the network or the studio saying, you know, what are you going to do if we can't get this done? Uh, you know, we've found it's best just to say, like, I don't know, I guess the show is ruined. <laughs> um, you know, not not in a <laughs> offensive way, but in a in a camaraderie rah-rah way of like, we we want to help make this work. And like flying to Los Angeles and being willing to drive out in the desert to see Chad, like we will move heaven and earth to to make things happen, you know, and and with Elizabeth, you know, it was really what can we do? You know, how can how can we help? Because sometimes things, you know, get bogged down or lost in translation, you know, when you when you are having lawyers and agents and managers and, and studio, you know, kind of shuffle paperwork to make something happen. And we always want to lead with our earnest, passionate selves. And if it doesn't work out after that point, then we can sleep at night. But we we always want the opportunity to to share our passion for this story, these characters um, and and why we want to invite somebody from that uh, world back into this with love. And we're we're batting pretty well right now in terms of uh, how that's been going. And. I think it's because we're coming from a place of of just we're fans. We're like fans who are making this really high level fan art um, in terms of what what a future version of the the Karate Kid looks like. Yeah, and and it doesn't hurt now that you're on a big platform like Netflix. <laughs> I guess yeah, maybe it'll be so. easier. Maybe we maybe they'll fly to us. <laughs> so so who's next? Who's a, who else is on the wish list? Uh, well, you know, th there's still a lot of people in the Miyagi-verse uh, that we have yet to um, call in. But, you know, for us, it's it's not, you know, we, we don't treat each season like, okay, well, who is the new person coming in? It really has to has to happen naturally. And we're excited about the new characters that we're creating uh, within our own universe. And so, you know... Uh, we're, we're focused on on the main characters, Johnny, Daniel, the and their their students, and um, and if there's a way to bring in an original character that has an impact and makes a difference, that's that's what matters more than you know the the fun nostalgic callback of of bringing them in. I think that's that's what we from the very beginning tried to try to avoid. Um, sometimes. You know, you'll see shows that literally are, you know, treating the entry of a character as, you know, a, a plot, you know, device. And, you know, for us, it's 
we're, we're telling, we're in the middle of a story right now. So if it doesn't make sense in season four, then you won't see the character, you know, in season four. But uh, that being said, we do have some characters uh, left in us. And, you know, you could, uh, you know, take a look at the movies and do the process of elimination and see, you know, who's left. <laughs> but the, but I'll also say there's some characters that you may not even see coming because we know these movies inside and out and, you know, fall in love with the most minor characters that, you know, maybe don't even have a line. Um you know, I'll just say, um, yeah, there's, uh, there's, 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 uh, there's a lot still to, uh, to mine. Well, what is your relationship with the movies after the first one? Cause I know that I must've watched the first movie 50 times, but I feel like I've probably seen Karate Kid 2 and Karate Kid 3 once a piece. And so yeah. same, same, same for me. So is, is it the same with you guys? I think like for Karate Kid 2 was the first movie that, you know, I saw in the theater. And I would I would say that that is has been seen, you know, by many people and, and is a big part of pop culture. It actually did better at the box office than the first movie. The third movie did not do well at the box office, but it was on HBO a lot. And so there's millions of people, you know, for, you know, a character like Terry Silver, who's in Karate Kid 3. I think there's as much recognition and knowledge of that character as as you know, um, as like some Marvel, you know, comic characters that they'll make whole movies out of. So, you know, we treat Karate Kid 3 as, you know, this thing that, okay, we know as filmmakers looking at it, all right, it's maybe not the most uh, perfect uh, work of art, but we treat it seriously as canon, as this did happen to Daniel LaRusso. Uh, this, this, in our world, uh, these were events that occurred, and so it's our job to uh, to make them feel as real as possible, um, and that's that's one of the the fun tasks. I was going to say, just to add to that, one of the things that I think it, there's a weird advantage that you have to the second and third, and you know the next Karate Kid, the fact that fewer people have seen those. Um, benefits us in one strange way. You know, one thing that we love about telling uh, telling a story about characters who are in their 50s is that oftentimes if you're telling a story about characters in their 50s and you want to do flashbacks to their youth, you're just casting new new actors, like young actors to play them and you're filming new new material. And we'll do that on our show a bit. But we do have three or four movies worth of material of actual flashbacks. So when you're showing flashbacks that are from Karate Kid 1 you know, there's that nostalgia factor for an audience that they'll really enjoy. Um, but when you're showing flashbacks from, say, Karate Kid 2 or Karate Kid 3, um, there's a little bit of a trip for an audience member in a certain way, where they're seeing these materials, the material where you're seeing, you know, Mr. Miyagi acting again in scenes that you maybe don't remember as well, or you'll see Daniel LaRusso acting, uh, you know, you'll see Ralph Macchio as Daniel LaRusso, you know, as a young man, uh, in again, you're like, wait a second, I don't really remember this scene, but it's always, we'll only use that material when it's relevant to the present day story and thematically what's going on or you know, whatever's happening in the lives of the characters. So, um, you know, I think those movies are, are super valuable for us as storytelling tools. And then there's, you know, the next Karate Kid, which, you know, is, you know, there, there's a little bit of controversy in the fan base about because Daniel isn't in there. And so for some people... Like that, you know, is, you know, they, they question whether that's canon or not. But like we said, you know, anything with Mr. Miyagi is in the Miyagi verse. And, you know, 
regardless of your feelings about that movie, I mean, it really launched Hillary Swank's career. Um, and so there's something special of, about that in and of itself. Um, Walton Goggins plays a role in that. If you want to, you know, look at characters in this universe that have yet to been, be mined. Um, so, I mean, there's, we, we just look at every nook and cranny of everything that we have. We treat them like these scrolls that, uh, the, these old testaments that, you know, maybe there's parts of them that are more famous than others, but they are all technically canon. Now, you guys took a property that Will Smith movie aside had pretty much gone fallow. Now I'm seeing ads for a video game. You've got Martin Cove uh, in a commercial basically playing Crease. I, I mean, for heaven's sakes, is Koala Kai canon, guys? <laughs> Koala Kai is not canon, but uh, but Martin Cove could not be happier about um, being. And we couldn't either. I mean, it's, it's 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 amazing how many people tell us, hey, I saw a commercial for your show. And I'm like, that's not a commercial for our show. <laughs> but it's it's amazing that how it's taken off in terms of we we knew and we had a suspicion that there was this Star Wars level of fandom out there that it, it couldn't be just coincidence that the three of us were that obsessed with Karate Kid um, where it was, you know, it was bleeding its way into every screenplay we ever wrote that had nothing to do with the Karate Kid. We would always have some little, you know, mention kind of like Kevin Smith always puts a Superman mention somewhere or other like we always had a you know a a something whether it was you know you're the best around or someone named Daniel or anything small that it felt like we were just leaving a little trail um so to see the show come out and resonate with that audience and really have people say this is exactly what I thought this should be uh it felt like oh we are it turns out we are representative of the fandom we're not on the fringe of of what this might be and then see it explode on Netflix and all of a sudden all this, you know, onslaught of of marketing and uh, and, you know, tangential material from the the game to the clothes to the, you know, to the tie ins. Um, it's we get a kick out of it. We, we love that all of a sudden it's so zeitgeisty. It's 1984 all over again. I do want to ask, too, but. You know, obviously there is the big Miyagi verse, which I cannot get over. That it is so great. Um, and my, I just want to say it again, the Miyagi verse. But do you guys have any idea, any plans or conversations or thoughts on expanding the world of Cobra Kai with a spinoff or a companion series? Any any other way to to broaden out what you're doing beyond what the show? I would say that, you know, our, our hope is, you know, while we do have uh, an end game for Cobra Kai, our hope is that in the process of this journey, we've expanded the universe to the point where you can, you know, um, explore the different worlds within the universe. And, you know, it's something that we talk about all the time. Um, you know, there's only so much that you can uh, explore on Cobra Kai because we're following like this, you know, all these narratives that we've already set up. Um, but... You know, I, I do think that, you know, th that this is the, this is a franchise that deals with themes that are evergreen. I mean, you're talking about bullying. You're talking about underdog stories, uh, mentors and students, you know, um, and and the thrill of uh, karate itself and martial arts. These are things that are not going to be, you know, out of fashion, I think, five years from now or three years from now. And so, 
you know, while we don't, you know, we, we don't see Cobra Kai as like the Simpsons going on forever. Like we said, we think in Breaking Bad terms, it can have an end. At the same time, look at what Breaking Bad did with Better Call Saul and El Camino. You know, like you can, the, the, the deeper and richer you make your world, um, the, the more opportunities there are. And we do think about like, oh, what if we just focused on this character or gave um, this character's backstory, you know, its own uh, movie or serialized treatment. And, you know, that's, that's exciting to us. And we'll, we'll see where that all goes. You know, we do talk about that stuff. And when we pitched to Netflix, the, the show, it wasn't just season uh, three and four. We talked about, you know, where we, you know, all the possibilities that we, we think there are with this franchise. We, we love it, obviously. We're huge car- hardcore fans. Um, and yeah, so I think that that stuff is possible. Now, at this point in the cast, whose karate is the best? Who is the ah. who is the actor who you know you don't need to shoot around in an act in an action scene? The the crazy thing is, several of them are amazing right now. I mean, uh, just thinking off the top of my head, Tanner Buchanan is one that there's a there's a moment in season three where he like runs up a wall and flips over. And it's fr- it was frustrating because we we were rushing that day. We had two units going at the same time, and we didn't have uh, enough cameras on him. But like in the show, it feels like it could be a stuntman. But that was him. I mean, like he he's amazing. I mean, Jacob Bertrand, who plays Hawk, it's it's you know you're almost never having to use his double. I mean, Sholo, um, you know, plays Miguel. Uh, very rarely are we using Billy Zabka. Billy Zabka, Z- yeah, Zabka, you know, is is very. He doesn't want to he's like, you know, keep me in coach kind of guy like, you know, when, when sometimes you want to get the, you know, the stunt performer in there just for safety's sake. Um, and, you know, Billy will sit there at the monitor with us and, and show us, you know, how he's telegraphing his move and, you know, telling me, put me back in there. I'm like, I'm not going to let you fall onto a concrete, you know, sidewalk. But these these uh, the performers, whether they came from the original series they i mean the original franchise or whether they're the the kids that joined the show they're very competitive with each other and proud of uh of all their stunt training and you know from the movie it was pat johnson who was uh, he played the referee at the all valley tournament um you know he's the guy standing between daniel and johnny you know he trained daniel he trained ralph macchio and pat marita in you know the miyagi form of of karate and gojuru and he trained uh the cobra kai's in tang sudo which is the the cobra kai style and in much the same way, Hito Koda and uh, Janelle Kerfman, who uh, coordinate the stunts for our show, really, you know, teach everybody the right kind of karate for the for the scene. You know, and we, and we try to craft the story on the page in terms of what a fight looks like and who's ahead and, and who's winning and, and how somebody might come back. And, you know, then we talk with them about what that might look like. And the actors love learning it. They love immersing themselves in it. Um, someone like Mary, you know, Mauser d- didn't really have any karate experience, you know, before this. And she loves going out there and challenging herself to to do her own stuff and and make it look good. And the more that they kind of, you know, get competitive with each other, it enables us to pull off these giant wonners where, you know, you're you're doing a little bit of magic, you know, swapping in some some stunt performers here and there in terms of, you know, creative Texas switches and and other fun things like that. But you're mostly shooting all your actors just, you know, beating the crap out of each other um, in one shot, which is, you know, some of the most fun that we've had making the show. 
Well, I hate to bring this to a close, but the segment's running very long and I could talk about this stuff all day. It's like talking about my childhood, seeing this movie. It just brings me right back. Um, but we do like to close every interview with the same question. What are you guys watching and enjoying lately? I just watched every episode that's on Netflix of a show called Forged in Fire that I had never heard of before. But I think now I'm ready to make my own uh, sword or knife in a forge and probably hurt myself. Um, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of scripted, you know, dramatic uh, interest in it, but it was great escapism because my wife and I started watching the latest season of Fargo. And we realized that uh, the show wasn't done uh, releasing yet. So we took a break from it to let it finish. And now we have to get back to it. And in the meantime, I watched 150 episodes of people making Genghis Khan's sword. Um, I, for me, uh, I'm, I'm in the midst of catching up on Schitt's Creek. Uh, that's something that, you know, uh, I started uh, a bit late and I've been enjoying watching. You know, it's funny when, when Hayden and I made uh, the movie American Reunion many years ago, we got to work with Eugene Levy, which is one of our career highlights. And we got to uh, travel around the world on the publicity tour uh, with the cast. And Eugene brought his son at the time, Dan, who was not really uh, in the business in a big way. He was like, a, you know, a, a MTV VJ in Canada at the time. And they were talking about this show that they were that they were planning to make together. So it's been amazing sort of catching up and, and, and watching that and seeing uh, this sort of family affair with some of the nicest people I've ever worked with um, and to see their success together has just been phenomenal. And for me, we're in the process right now of writing season four. And, and when I'm writing, I, I can't watch any other serialized show or else my mind goes to the show that I'm writing. So I need to watch things that take me completely out of, you know, narrative storytelling. So I'm watching forged in fire, Hayden forged in fire. I'm watching, <laughs> I'm watching football and I'm watching Jeopardy. You know, I'm watching things that are just, you know, suck me in and make me forget about writing and story and character and anti-heroes or anything like that. Um, but, you know, in the off season, uh, I have a lot of catching up uh, to do for sure. I just watched the Belushi doc and the uh, the comedy store docs on uh, Showtime, actually, also. And I really loved both of them. I thought uh, they, they both kind of immersed me in a period of time that uh, I'm obsessed with. Excellent. Well, Cobra Kai season three is now available to stream on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thank oh, you for having us. Great to see you. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Lots of stuff to choose from, Dan. This week's major new launches include Cobra Kai season three on Netflix. Mayim Bialik reunites with exec producer Jim Parsons for Fox's Call Me Cat. Fox launches animated comedy The Great North. The Rookie returns for its third season on ABC. The Bachelor is also back on ABC. Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist launches its second season on NBC. Michael Chiklis drama Coyote debuts on CBS All Access. And Ted Danson returns to NBC with Mr. Mayor. Dan, what you got? Well, the first thing to note is that several of those shows, uh, specifically Coyote and Mr. Mayor, have embargoes that are after January 1st when this podcast will be going up. So I can say absolutely nothing about either Coyote or Mr. Mayor. So it goes. Uh, Cobra Kai, my review is already up, so you can read it. Um, and you can also hear a lot of kind of the discussion of what's interesting to me about this season in the interview that you just listened to with the nice Cobra Kai people. I, I think that there are aspects of the third season 
that the show can't quite sell. There are dramatic beats that are probably more serious than the show has the foundation to handle. Like there are Vietnam flashbacks involving John Kreese that I, I just don't think this is the kind of show that can deal with. Um, it's also not as overtly funny as some seasons of the show. On the other hand, I think this season captures the tone of the Karate Kid movies better than any previous season. So there's a lot of emotional, sincere, earnest, underdog sports fun. And I think that's what really and truly people are looking for from this show. And I think there are a lot of good moments. I think that it handles a lot of the flashbacks to things within the franchise's past fairly well. There are nice uh, nods to the second Karate Kid movie, which is not a good movie, but I think they handle those nods really well, actually. Uh, there are guest stars who we can't spoil, but they will make people happy. And I think that the finale does a really good job of setting up what the fourth season looks like. And I, I am actually really excited for the fourth season of Cobra Kai because it, it feels like what this has all been building up to. And that's a that's a nice feeling. So, yeah, so that's so that's a thing that people will definitely be talking about. There are a bunch of things uh, premiering this weekend. You didn't even mention PBS and Masterpieces. Elizabeth is missing, starring Glenda Jackson as a woman battling Alzheimer's and trying to solve a pair of missing cases, uh, missing people cases separated by decades. You probably will not see more than a half dozen better performances on TV this year than what Glenda Jackson gives in that series. But if you don't want to watch a 90 minute movie about a woman with Alzheimer's, solving crimes. I understand that. That's fair. But Glenda Jackson is spectacular in that movie. I mean, when you get a good actor and you give them a great part, it's fun to watch. So there's that. Uh, if you look on Sunday, there are also a couple new Fox things. Uh, Mayim Bialik back on, on TV in Fox's Call Me Cat. Uh, it's very, very broad. Mayim Bialik tries very, very hard. I don't think I laughed much in the four episodes that I saw, but... Um, you know, so it goes. I definitely laughed more at the Great North, which is getting a special preview this weekend and then is going to a regular time slot in February. It's the latest show from the Bento Box Animation family and Lauren Bouchard of Bob's Burgers, an, ex an executive producer, though he's not the creator. Uh, the creators are the Molyneux sisters. And it's got just a great ca vocal cast. Nick Offerman leads the cast, but you have... Uh, you have Will Forte, you have Jenny Slate, you have a bunch of great guest uh, voices, including Megan Mullally, who, you know, likes to work with Nick Offerman for fairly logical reasons. Uh, you you have Aparna Nacherla, who is very, very funny, Dulce Sloan, um, and Alanis Morissette as herself. Uh, she is one of the main characters, imaginary friends. Uh, I, I liked it a lot. It's it's maybe not as immediately hilarious and quirky and weird and fun as Bob's Burgers at its peak, but it's it's very entertaining. And the sensibility, if you know the sensibility from Bob's Burgers, it is very much that sensibility. And so I quite enjoyed that. And then um We've, you know, I've mentioned it in the past because it's a show that I liked. Uh, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist is, was just one of the pleasures of last spring and watching the platform that it gave to Jane Levy, watching the exuberant, emotional, 
excitement that the entire series had. Not enough people probably watched that show. The first few episodes back are are very, very solid. They they don't run away from the very, very sad place that the show left itself at the end of last season. They don't run away from the love triangle that the show built up last season. It's it's just a, a very satisfying show for me. And it's it's one of the better things on broadcast TV at this point. And so yeah, that's a, that's a show that I'm glad they were able to get back into production because, you know, it's a show that has big full scale musical numbers. So it's it probably wasn't a given that they'd be able to do it at all. It was, wasn't a given it was going to get renewed. So it that. Yeah, that's that's a show I'm also happy to have back. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff there that is is worth checking out. Um, and really, everyone's just going to be watching Cobra Kai on New Year's morning. So totally fine. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps search engine optimization and all of that fun stuff. And it really does spread the word of mouth. We appreciate the kind words. You can always drop by on Twitter to say howdy, uh, to criticize us for things, to embrace us for things, you know, whatever you want to do. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, we nearly did one this week, but, you know, we'll, we'll get to one in the next couple weeks to be sure. You can always email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.